0: Now, over the years, I have found myself concerned to know who or what role models would captivate my children, who my competition is when it comes to raising my children. And as I've become a grandpa, that concern has only intensified as I think of my precious little grandchildren. And if you're a parent, I think you you, you know exactly what I mean. It's like trying to identify that competition that you face as you seek then to be the influence, the best influence that you can be for the little ones in the shaping of their heart while they are in your care. Now maybe that's why a news item caught my eye a few years ago and I clipped it out and and took comfort in it. It was the results of of a nationwide survey that was conducted by Weekly Reader Research. Uh, and it really came as a surprise to me, because it defied the conventional wisdom that I've come to assume, that celebrities or athletes or entertainers are, in fact, the primary role models that, 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 that teenagers look to. Uh, but, but instead, the, the survey revealed that 67.7% of 12 to 18-year-olds believe that their parents are the most important role models in today's society. Number one on the list. Sounds like family feud here, doesn't it? Ding, 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 ding. Number one, 67%. 0.7%. The parents. I was really surprised at that. But then there was more. Wait, there's more. After parents, 406 identified teachers and coaches. That's okay, I can, I can understand, but, but here's another surprise. After teachers and coaches, siblings came in third at 40.4%. That means that a lot of people out there see their brother or their sister as a role model, someone they'd like to become when they grow up. And if you're interested then, religious leaders, pastors, youth leaders, they came in fourth in that survey at 18.7%. And it was only after that, then, that athletes came in at 18.3, and celebrities came in last at 16.5%. Now, now, now that confirms, for the most part, what I would like to suspect, that the best role models are people made of real character, parents. There is nothing about them that is made for stage, screen, or TV. They are common, ordinary folk. I know it of myself. But what elevates these people is that they live lives of integrity. They are mothers and they are fathers. They are grandmas. They are grandpas. They are brothers and they are sisters. They are teachers. They are coaches. They are pastors. And they are mentors who operate in faithful and ordinary routines day by day and are measured on an annual basis. In many ways, their lives prove to be a biblical principle uh, where true heroes, the role models of the Scriptures, end up living ordinary lives in dependence upon an extraordinary God. And the proof of their character usually arrives at a moment when God thrusts them into a spotlight where we can see them and they emerge, usually awkward, somewhat hesitant, shy, but the metal of their character has already been forged and we see them as obedient and faithful and true. And through them, God ends up doing very marvelous things. So as we have gone to the Old Testament during this fall, in preparation for Advent, we've been looking at these hidden heroes of the Old Testament. And sprinkled in that list of biblical heroes, heroes, there are a number of Extraordinary women, I need to elevate their roles. You have Esther, you have Ruth, you have Abigail. We spoke of Abigail earlier, and this morning I want to direct your attention to another very special woman Hannah, a mother. (laughs) I was told this morning that this might be a better message to save for Mother's Day, but I'm going to give it to you now because she's one of the 67.7% of true heroes among us. Now you're going to find her story in the first two chapters of 1 Samuel, and I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles there as I I kind of cover that ground in the first two chapters of 1 Samuel. And it's appropriate to look at her story today and discover a few critical lessons, principles to take to heart. Now reading the story may actually sound familiar to you. In chapter 1, we are introduced to a man named Elkanah by name in verse 2, who is possessed of two wives. One of them he loves, but is barren and without children. In verse 4, we are introduced to the other, who has given him a pile of sons and daughters. Now, does that story sound familiar? Does it have a biblical ring to it? Top it off with the fact that between the two wives we find that there's a bitter rivalry. You see that in verses 6 and 7. Again, does that story sound familiar? Let me toss out a few names. You have Abraham with Sarah and Hagar. And and, and you're familiar with that story because it, it it is a classic story of a household rivalry with an added twist of infertility and promise somehow bound together. And when you look closely in the Scriptures, you will, find, in fact, find quite a list of women chosen by God to receive the promise of love as well as the gift of a child, but find out that, humanly, it is just not happening. Who knows why God chose to work this way with these women, but but he does, and when we look at Hannah, it's not hard to see the impact that it has had on her life. As pastor, I've been involved with any number of couples who struggle with infertility. and They are often the ones who find days like Mother's Day to be particularly stressful. And keenly aware of their desire for children, they are finally, constantly being reminded that there is something wrong. And the years are not kind to such couples. Some find that it's more than they can handle. And I'm sure you may know couples l- like that as, as well. Their hearts are sensitive to the issue. That part of their life is like fragile crystal. It can be easily broken. And you can just imagine then this woman, Hannah, here in 1 Samuel. We have no idea of her age here, but we are told in verse 6 that the Lord had closed her womb and her rival kept provoking her to irritate her. As one poet has written of her, it said, She was dancing on her her crystal heart, seeing how many pieces she could break. Can you just picture the scene? Penadina, the rival wife, the one with all the children, probably spent every day parading her children in front of the, the household. And Hannah had no place to hide. She lived in the same house. And you can imagine that for some people, the burden like that, a daily grind, a daily conflict, might make them hard. Brittle. And certainly te- Hannah was tempted in that direction. Look at verse 10. It's, it says that she was, she was tempted with a bitterness of soul. What a turn of phrase that is, a bitterness of soul. Do, do, you, do you know what it means to be possessed of a bitterness of soul? Some of you do, and then the question is, what do you do with it? Do you resign yourself to it and then just become harder and harder and harder? Well, I want you to look and see what Hannah did. In verse 10, it says, She wept much, but then it also says she prayed much. She wept much, but she prayed much. And maybe in in that little phrase, there's a secret as to why God chose to do this again and again in the Bible. I can't help but think that for the extraordinary children that God wished to place on this earth, he needed to have extraordinary women to raise them up, or moms who care. And somehow during the years, Hannah's heart was made deeper and deeper, as it was dredged by weeping much and praying much. And it certainly led her to do one very beautiful thing. Look at verse 11 in chapter 1. She made a vow. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. Do you have a prayer request before the Lord like that, similar to that? A prayer that, that, that you've prayed for so long that it's become forged, as it were, into a vow. You notice that it's not a prayer, it's a vow at this point. It's, it's something certain, hard, shaped, formed, developed. It's drilled, it's drilled down into the heart. It's not a bargaining chip type of prayer, but it is a determination to live in deeper dependence upon, upon God. And it is not for something to satisfy a moment, but it is a matter that defines a whole commitment to God. And so you pray it and you pray it and you pray it, even though others may think you to be a fool. In verse 12, that's what she did. And in fact, Eli, the, the head priest of the time, did think her to be a fool. In verse 14, he, you'll notice in chapter 1 there, he comes to her and he says, are you drunk? And in verse 16, she goes, I know who I am. I am a woman deeply troubled, but a woman who belongs to God. And then if you pause at the end of verse 16, you will note that that saints of great character are revealed not in times of great triumph, but out of the longer stretches of great anguish and grief. It's there that we find the stuff where they are really made from. Eli, for some reason, receives a word from God and passes it on to her in this encounter. He says, He says, Okay, go, get ready for your baby. (laughs) And lo and behold, in verse 20, she has a son. Samuel is born. And here is at that point where we learn some lessons. The first being that moms who care make their vows and then keep their promises. Now keep in mind, Samuel's arrival was an act of God. It was an answer to her prayer which was forged over time and had become a vow. It was a fulfillment of a promise. And I have to stop and think of how many people I've heard who throw out desperate vows to God. Uh, God, uh, g- give me what I so desperately want, and I, I don't know, I'll, I'll never swear again, I'll, I'll never cheat again, I'll, I'll never binge again, uh, and, and I'll even go to church for the rest of my life. They make a promise, God answers it, But once it's answered, they go on their merry way. And at first, I'm tempted to think that Hannah may have faced such a temptation. Verse 21, Elkanah, ready to make his sacrifice to the Lord, wondering if Hannah will make hers along with her, she says to him, no, not yet. I'm not going to do that quite yet. And when I read that in verse 21, there, the cynical part of me says uh, she's stalling. But the godly part of me realized that what she is doing is much, much harder than that. She is contemplating about what it means to fulfill her role and then bonds with her son. She weans him, but she does so with an open and determined heart, a heart that is determined to honor God. And in her years of prayer, she had already given her child to God. And in verse 24, she's fulfilling that vow now. I stand in a bit of awe with this. I stand in awe whenever I see parents not only wean their child, but wean themselves of their children when they send their children on the mission field. I stand in awe when I see parents trust their children to God's care and then step back as they leave home and enter into a hostile and dark world to be the light. I am in awe because I know it. It's a risk, and it must hurt. And especially for Hannah, uh, with a heart that has been made as tender as crystal for years, now touching her baby's hand, only to know that she has made the vow to give that child away. But I read in verse 28 the, the dedication, So I have also dedicated him to the Lord, and as long as he lives, he is dedicated to the Lord and they worshiped the Lord there. Moms who care make their vows, keep their promises, and then the next lesson is they celebrate their blessings. Chapter 1 ends with a very tender scene. It's it's a scene of a mother and a son worshiping together. Chapter 2 gives us an idea of what what constituted their worship because it gives an idea of a prayer that stands like a liturgy at the center of their relationship. And, and, and if you read through chapter 2 uh, from, from 1 to 10, it, it reads like a psalm. And it, and it goes this way May, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted on high. There was no one holy like God. There was no rock like our God. Notice the plural there, our God. They share it together. It is a one on one worship session, just a mother and a son together. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no rock like our God. The foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Verse 8, he will guard the feet of his saints. Like I said, this, this reads like a psalm, doesn't it? In chapter 2, I would like to think that her words became his words as well, that she taught him how to speak by saying these words, and that together they would share this moment of worship in such a way that it would become a chorus that they would share over the years like a private echo resonating between their hearts. That each time they would think of each other, that these words would would erupt. The foundations of the earth are the Lord's. He will guard the feet of his saints. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no rock like our God. Now, those are words to cling to. And if you look at chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, you'll notice that each year... She would go to the temple, and I would like to think that when she did, she would take a moment to sing that song together with her son. And as years went by, Samuel would sing along with her, and somehow it became a blessing that they shared together from God. One thing is for sure. God did not leave Hannah empty-handed. In chapter 2, verse 21, you'll notice that, that God poured out some grace upon her in the form of three more sons and two more daughters. (laughs) And and, and I have to imagine the attention that they would have enjoyed in their lives from Hannah. The envy of of, of their stepbrothers and sisters, they would have enjoyed something from her heart because she had been forged by God already. Her heart was ready, it was willing and able to give knowing that her sacrifice, her parents' sacrifice was worth it and was capable of adding blessing to blessing to blessing to blessing to blessing. But I should probably temper my words a bit. The value of blessing is not always all things bright and beautiful. There are shades and there are shadows as well. And I have to think that there are probably some people here within the sanctuary who have experienced... Some of the darker sides of raising a child. And which has included some degree of hurt and agony. Some here who may confess that they have enjoyed just about as much of being a parent as they can stand. And I know the feeling. And I realize that in learning these lessons and taking them to heart, it is also a call to be courageous and brave in the task And answering the question, is it worth it? Is it worth it? And that opens what I suppose is the deepest lesson here, which actually is quite simple. To answer that question every time you think it. Is this worth it? With a resounding, yes it is. Because it's in God's hands. From a mom who cared, (laughs) it's worth it. And it's more than a mother's discovery. It's one thing that we all must make, whether we be parents or teachers or coaches or siblings or pastors or youth directors or mentors, as we care for one another. Our lives are are made noble as we are obedient to our high calling. And it's a great lesson to learn that our honest, sacrificial obedience to one another is what really honors God and becomes our worship. A number of years ago, I clipped out a note from one of my favorite theologians, Irma Bombeck. How many of you remember Irma Bombeck? Oh, good, you're showing your age. Um, I loved loved her writings. She was great. And and, and she wrote this, listen very carefully what she writes. She goes, making a baby is one of the greatest non-skilled acts in the world. It requires virtually no experience, no talent, no expertise. People who can't type, use chopsticks, throw a frisbee, work a VCR, or hold down a job can still make a baby. I've often thought that before a couple contemplates producing offspring, they should be required to exchange vows like the one made in a marriage ceremony. Just to give them some guidelines... Here is what I would add into the, into, the, into the ceremony. And if you agree with these, please answer by saying, I will. And the questions are these. Will you take this child to the bathroom when your hockey team is tied in the playoffs with 40 seconds left to go on the clock? I will. <laughs> will you restrain your temper when your child goes to a restaurant and orders a $15 hamburger plate and only eats the pickle? I will, (laughs) I have, (laughs) will you gladly spring for a pair of $100 tennis shoes that he will only wear when his feet are on the furniture? Will uh, Will you abort a planned getaway weekend to watch your daughter break out in the measles? Will you drive your old car for another five years so you can afford to have your son's teeth straightened? I will and I have. (laughs) Will you travel 300 miles to deliver your daughter to college for the sole purpose of carrying her baggage to the third floor? I will and I have. Are you willing to be awakened from a sound sleep at 3 in the morning to pick up your son who ran out of gas? I will and I have. Will your daughter still be your little girl when she chooses a Moroccan caterer for her wedding reception at $250 a head? I will, but I haven't. <laughs> Do you promise to have the courage to challenge your children when they are wrong, praise them when they are right, and love them no matter what? Will you? We will. Do you promise, uh, um, will you carve such a niche for yourself in their lives that being away from you is unbearable? Will you love them through loans and love affairs and failures and triumphs for the rest of your life? These are the questions. And she closes by saying most couples don't get beyond. The counting of precious little fingers and toes in the nursery, and haven't the foggiest idea what is meant by all that bonding, nurturing, quality time rhetoric. But those who have, who have done it well, well, all the best, you know that it's worth it. And to this, I would only add in closing of this message consider who has been placed in your care. for whom you are the role model, the one to shape in character. How can you f- forge your charge into a righteous vow with your prayers in such a way that it would produce a blessing? And so for just a moment, as we come to the close of the message, I'm going to ask you to think of a name. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's, it's somebody that you're teaching in Sunday school or in a Bible study. Someone that God has put you in a position to influence. Think of their name.